it's not Gen Zs who are sort of in some corner of TikTok plotting to disrupt the world. They are literally coming into the workforce, the ones that actually haven't had so much of their initial work experience being disrupted by the pandemic, which was a very isolating experience for so many people. But they come into the workforce and the labor market and maybe the offices. Their first impression is how things are now, not how things were. They don't have these entrenched, learned ways of doing things. They don't have anything to unlearn. And they're just reacting to what is. And so this sort of blame, like you're trying to do this and you're disrupting that, it's like they're just responding and have the freshest eyes on how the workplace has changed, what modern work is. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Sophie Wade, work futurist and strategist, expert in modern work, specifically in engagement of Generation Z. Now, responding to ongoing technology evolution, changes in ways we work, executive and managers have to adapt their work operations and practices to meet these unpredictable business conditions. Sophie was one of the first who struck me at an executive event hosted by Upwork, where she was sharing about the future of work, engaging millennials and Gen Zs. Over the last number of years, I've continued to follow her work. She's written fantastic books, Embracing Progress and most recently, Empathy Works, that really focus around the changing work practices and how to leverage the best of all talent across your organization. People have taken her course on LinkedIn Learning, over half a million in fact, and her most recent courses on engaging and retaining Gen Z are a must for anyone. I'm excited to have her on the show to share what she's learning, the latest research, and ways that you can put actionable strategies in place to connect your company and the different demographics within it. But before we talk about what she's doing now, let's go back to some of the more formative experiences in her own life as she started to immerse herself in different worlds and ways of working. When I lived in Hong Kong for five years, right after university, as a result of that experience and wanting to use the Chinese that I'd learned. And what I would love is just walking down a street in Hong Kong to look down the alleyways to the sides. And there'd be something going on there that was completely new. I just gave myself goosebumps, actually. That was exciting to be always like learning something new. And I'll still be doing that in New York now or, you know, whenever I'm traveling, but also even in New York, because each area, sometimes even just a block, has a different character, has a different combination of buildings and enterprises and people. And that's what really excites me. So understanding, like trying to learn all those different contexts and how to adapt when you're traveling around South America, how to adapt to be able to assimilate. So I think for me also, working in these different countries, in addition to traveling, was pivotal in that learning experience for me, to be able to succeed, I had to listen really hard and watch and observe and kind of say, well, what are the different elements? Like, you know, I lived in Germany for two and a half years, very different appreciation of work or like work is this. And Hong Kong certainly had a very similar attitude as the US toward work, which was working all the time for all the time I lived in Hong Kong. I worked 
two Saturdays out of every three from nine to one. Work was just so much of your life. Whereas in Germany, it's very separated. Work is work and you do that and that's great. And then there's so much of life, which is much more important than work. Work is important too. So all these different elements, really, I was always trying to sort of understand and absorb and really try and work out how all the pieces fit together to understand better. Really fascinating. Well, it's funny as you share this, as we sort of roll forward into where you are today, so much of your actual focus has been on understanding culture, how people operate, how they empathize to one another, how they make progress in cultures that there's a lot of different people with different viewpoints, values, thinking. You've written like two fantastic books in this topic, Embrace Progress and Empathy Works. And they're great for me anyway, being sources of just like understanding and building comprehension about what is going to help some people tick and actually what you might be well-intended in how you express it, but actually can have really negative consequences. It's especially, I think you have a very unique focus or when I first met you, when we did this event with Upwork at their sex sort of event, it was a big focus on younger generations, Gen Z specifically, which I can't tell you how many times I'm sitting down now as someone who's starting a venture studio. You know, I'm in my mid forties at this stage. I'm trying to work with people who are in their teens, trying to connect with what matters to them. And I constantly hear other people in the company sort of go, ah, millennials, this is what they want. Ah, Gen Zs, this is what's wrong with them. And nobody wants to do any work. Why do they need to be the CEO? They've only been here for three days. What is going on here? (laughs) You're someone I think who actually has a really great viewpoint on this. And I am someone who's experiencing firsthand the rawness of trying to make these connections and motivate and inspire a lot of these people to do work, but also set expectations that you're not going to be the CEO of the company after four weeks of being here because you did one (laughs) social post that five people like. So tell us a little bit, what helps you get into that world or what were some of the things even for yourself you had to unlearn as you were going into this space from studying languages, living in these different countries, but then starting applying it to the business context about how people can actually collaborate and be way more effective together. Right. So, you know, my first career was really about strategic development in finance and doing lots of financial modeling and that kind of stuff and helping companies get funding. And then it was to do with my two kids who then wanted more time with me and I was working such long hours. So that was really the transition point to look for more flexible work. And then I set up my own company instead because that was actually going to be easier. So I started in the workplace flexibility, really thinking about how work can be done differently and sort of really think about all the different needs and how it can be using technology. And it was millennials, which I was what I was talking about at that conference, where so many people were complaining about millennials. That was where I first recognized this idea of empathy. And it wasn't even, I didn't really coin at that point. I was just kind of like, okay, there were so many people complaining about these darn millennials. And that was only seven years ago. So what is the issue? Let me look at all this research and try and understand what is going on. And let me put myself in their shoes and try and understand from their perspective. And of course, that's what empathy is. There are lots of things which are very similar to 
any generation coming into the workforce as they were like the key generation, the young generation in the workforce, the youngest generation in the workforce then. But looking at what was different as well as what was same. So it was about career development and the use of technology. That was when I started understanding, like, what is the effect of that technology? If you've grown up with the technology, certainly the younger half of the millennial generation really was the first age group that really started being educated at school with so much technology being integrated into what they were doing and how they were doing, connecting, collaborating. I really started trying to say, well, what does that mean? And if you have more access to information, how are you thinking about the world? That has helped me really continually try and set my own expectations and understanding of how things are going to be received by somebody who sees the world very differently than I did. I mean, I do remember when I went into the workforce early on, if you try to get information about a company, this sounds like through the dark ages, but you needed to try and find a friend who worked at a bank who could then surreptitiously copy one of their research reports on a company and they'd photocopy it and they'd get it to you. That was it. That was how you found out because there was no other way, really, unless you knew somebody at the company. It was insane to think about how ridiculous that is now. But now with this, I have extraordinary information. What does that mean? So that's been my journey to really continuously do it. Now I have two Gen Z kids, so I am super aware. One is who's 23 and just finishing college, and the other one is 16. They have very different, not just their ages, but just their perspectives, but they have their own specific interpretations and relationships with technology, both being concerned about it, being concerned about how dependent they are or how it affects their perceptions of the world, that it can be anxiety producing. All of these different things continually make me very aware as well as I do remember at that presentation that I gave of the video that was two. 17-year-olds who'd been tasked by one of their fathers to try and make a telephone call with an old dial phone. And they had no idea. They looked at this thing like, what is this thing? Like, what? Do I have to like pull a dial around? Like, what? That's insane. (laughs) And some of these things, we don't realize how different things are. The words that you use, you know, I guess I'll dial you like, what does a dial mean? And ringtone, what does a ringtone mean? You don't have ringtones anymore. Just always remembering, constantly reminding myself, is this the same? Like, what am I saying? Is it actually landing? Do I understand what's going on? Or do I understand what the situation is for them? And honestly, so much has changed. When I'm thinking about my son and looking into the career landscape and talking to the kids of my friends and the landscape that they're looking at and listening to the reactions of some of my friends in terms of what their kids are going through or sort of career expectations or job moves and things like that. Constantly being aware and gathering information to try and understand is one of my key ways to just keep current, to keep questioning myself. Am I actually understanding what's going on? It's fascinating when you say this. My initial data point is I'm from a very large family. There's six of us. I'm the second eldest and my youngest brother has just turned 30 recently. Even then, to sort of understand the way he would operate and see the world, when we talk about his expectations about the type of business that he wants to be in, the people that he wants to be surrounded by, work in many ways has felt social for him very much, even when they were 
sort of remote during the pandemic, it was really, really difficult for him mm. in terms of like connectivity and community. And all of these things are really missing from him. It was fascinating sometimes to like dial into just that different perspective constantly where I'm like, well, that's interesting. Yeah. That's not the conditioning, if you will, that I've had for how I would right. tackle that problem. So it's always been sort of fascinating to have that debate a little bit to give me some insight into it. But at the same time, there are some fundamentals, like this notion of how technology enabled so many, especially people as they come into the workforce at the moment are, they're digital natives, they know these things. I keep thinking about the classic meme on the internet where the old senior manager is like struggling how to use PowerPoint and the junior person's going, why is this person doesn't even know how to use PowerPoint? Yet they're my manager. You know, it makes me laugh about these things. And they're being paid that much more than I am. That's one exactly. thing. They're being paid that much more than I am. And they get to retire, which a quarter of Gen Zs in this country do not believe they're ever going able to retire. There are so many things that cause these gaps because of a lack of understanding both ways in terms of what the different experiences are. Yeah. These are great points. Like you say, you're living this research. So that feeling, and even just listening to you say it, my reaction is almost like coming from that person's perspective, like animosity towards, I'll never be able to retire because of the work situation yeah. created by essentially you, other party, more senior party. Even right. just listening to you say that, that triggers me. So and tell the me planet. more. Like, yeah, the tell planet. me more. Yeah. If you, my Gen X, or boomer manager, if you care about the planet, and I don't think that you were willingly part of getting it to this point, but now if you do understand that, why aren't you doing more? So then there becomes a credibility gap. Like if you understand and you are in the power, we're not in the power right now, but you're in power, why aren't you doing more? Then there becomes more resentment. There becomes more challenge to make that connection because there is this lack of understanding. And the way I look at it, it's not Gen Zs who are sort of in some corner of TikTok plotting to disrupt the world. They are literally coming into the workforce, the ones that actually haven't had so much of their initial work experience being disrupted by the pandemic, which was a very isolating experience for so many people. But they come into the workforce and the labor market and maybe the offices. Their first impression is how things are now not how things were. They don't have these entrenched, learned ways of doing yeah. things. They don't have anything to unlearn and they're just reacting to what is. And so this sort of blame, like you're trying to do this and you're disrupting that. It's like they're just responding and have the freshest eyes on how the workplace has changed, what modern work is. So we can learn a huge amount from Gen Zs in terms of understanding their reactions, how they're responding, how they're using technology how they're exploring and experimenting with AI. There's a huge amount that we can be learning. And yes, you know, I almost talk about sort of bi-directional mentoring pairs that you can actually be learning and sharing the experience. And, and that way, it's easier to try and understand the different mindsets and, then, and have an exchange of value that can be really beneficial. And as well for younger people too, they do expect to have agency in contribute because one, their parents are saying, advocate yourself. Yes, yeah, speak up. And, and then of course they get into the workforce and those same people are not like, when they're talking 
to, they're hiring and working with team members who are young, they don't want them to speak up in the same way. But they are advocating for themselves because that's what they know. That's what they understand. That's how the world works. And that's how you make change. And they do feel that they have that agency. But that's not what is being appreciated by older generations who do not have that context. We're not expected or desired to be speaking up or adding those ideas. At the time, they didn't necessarily have very much information or much to contribute because that's just the way things worked and information was power and the people at the bottom didn't have any information or didn't have much information. But that's different. Now we have a much flatter in sort of information hierarchy and that's changed the dynamics in so many ways that people are not appreciating and what those changes mean. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the bi-directional mentorship. Like one person we had on the show is Joe Norenia. He's the former head of business banking for HSBC. And one of the things that what he used to do is when graduates came into the company every year, he would sit down with them and give them problems to work on that he himself was working on. Oh. For the specific reason to see how they would go about solving those problems. You can imagine in a traditional company like HSBC, very hierarchical, when you've got some of the most senior people in the company sitting down with the sort of noobs and they're like, how would you solve this problem? And they see them jump out and grab AI tools and start doing researching tools. You can imagine the cultural artifact that creates in the company when they're seeing these senior leaders sit down with junior people and learn from them bi-directionally, as you say. It always strikes me again, like that comes from a place of curiosity and humility. We need more of that in many ways because those folks feel activated and heard because they're demonstrating their competency in many ways characters like joe are getting even better because they're learning or being exposed to new ideas new methods and ways of working in large companies campbell is certainly an example that i remember and they did it quite a long time ago is to have some junior level committees also that were lower down the company and that had a mix of some senior executives, but also more junior people, so that there was a mixed voice, so that you also had a platform for much younger employees and much less experienced employees or less experienced in the business to be able to contribute ideas. And particularly that can bring now much more of the technology, some of the intuitive technology ideas and concepts that younger employees can give, particularly because they have, I mean, one of the things that the youngest employees have is they've had more time to play with technology. I don't have any time to play with technology. You yeah. recommend an app to me and I'm like, great, thanks, Barry. How do I use it? Quick, let me do it. But people who have much more time to experiment and explore and kind of like, oh, I wonder I can do, oh, I've seen something like that. Somebody talked to me about that. Then they have a much more expansive appreciation of the different things that might be possible. So putting them on some kind of committee or group that they need to be speaking up and they can show their value. And that helps other people in the organization appreciate their value to the business. And that's what's really important. It's great to hear you say this. So you are like living this stuff every day. You're one of the people who I see is most deep in it. Tell us more of these insights that you're gleaning from all the research you're doing. What are some of the ones that have most surprised you that challenged your own thinking where you're like, that is not what I thought the answer was going to be? 
what has sort of jumped out to you as you've done this work? Really interesting thing happened. I was actually in London for the new course that I have on LinkedIn about Gen Zs. I had gathered a group of Gen Zs, you know, about eight people, not statistically significant. So these are anecdotes, but it was very interesting. So we, this conversation starts and they're like rapid fire. I'm asking them about their jobs and this. And they're all from 23 to 28, I guess. Very determined, very definitive answers about this, that, and the other. And then I say, which I think is a sort of throwaway question, what does each one of you want to be doing you know, for your career in the next five to 10 years? Silence, confusion. Like, okay, this is interesting, not what I expected. What they all agreed on after sort of some hesitant discussion was that they really were focused on learning, that they would leave once they became an asset their word, to the company they were at if they stopped learning, if they didn't get a promotion, because that was what they were focused on. They were so focused on learning. Only one person actually came up with a, oh, I want to be maybe working in a nonprofit, working, who she was working at a bank right now. Then doing more research after that and research, which was basically saying that 54% of 18 to 24-year-olds in 2019 believe that they're going to do a job that doesn't exist yet. What does that mean? That means if I'm in my early 20s, and there was also, I found lots and lots of research, which was saying, this generation is job hopping, and they're this, that, and the other, and they're, you know, put those things together. And thinking about, if you are in your early 20s, and you have no idea what job you might do, unless you have a very specific, decided career path, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever it might be, if you're very focused on that, typically a traditional career, you're going to explore not job hub, you're going to explore. You're going to gather as many skills as you can internally within organizations, if that's possible. It has not surprised me, but it's been something I've been tracking for years now, but it's very hard still to move internally within organizations. Talent mobility and internal talent marketplaces are still very nascent. It's a challenge for HR because when you have, let's say, tens of thousands of employees, trying to track lots of non-linear career paths is very hard. So that's still harder. So it's easier for young people to actually leave organizations in order to advance their careers. That's so fascinating, you know, because first of all, most of, I would say like 90% of the most interesting people I know all have nonlinear careers, almost by default. Well, the linear career doesn't really exist anymore. (laughs) Yeah, right. But this notion of what experiences do you glean from the opportunities that are put in front of you? Sometimes that sits within a company and sometimes you're lucky and either the company is progressive enough or you find opportunities to go experience a different skill. One of the most fascinating things for myself anyway, I started off as an engineer. I liked it, but I certainly wasn't every day enjoying it. Just because I was in a context where we had cross-functional sort of work, I realized actually writing code was not what I wanted to do. I actually like designing solutions and coming up with product ideas. And that's what led me to more product management focus over time and ultimately building businesses. But I only learned about that because I had the opportunity. Yeah, because you had the opportunity to actually observe and interact with people across the organization. That's not common still. No, it's not. Again, I feel very lucky because I had good people around me who created those opportunities or helped me learn my way into what I actually wanted to do. And I even found this as well when the last sort of like large organization I worked in, ThoughtWorks, 
there was such a strong emphasis on trying to find people who came into technology from non-obvious backgrounds as well. Mm. It was like one of our secret sources of attracting really great talent because they were often folks that didn't fit the convention. They didn't go to the prestigious school. They didn't go and get their four-year degree in software engineering. They were often people who started off as cooks or chefs and then were like, did a coding course on Ruby and then suddenly really enjoyed it. It was such a well of really interesting people because they were following their intellectual curiosity in many ways. It was a pursuit for them. And they were like, this is something new I'm learning. They were thirsty to keep getting better at it. What I have always found, especially in entrepreneurship, is the people who really do well is they have a deep interest in the problem that they're working on. It does not feel like work for them. It's something that they're so engaged in. They're happy to keep trying to improve at it because they want to figure it out. They want to figure out what the Rubik's Cube is. And it's definitely a fascinating thing as you describe it, because that conventional viewpoint of, oh, I looked at your CV and you're 18 months here and four months there. And you're obviously someone who's not sort of engaged in their work and you just seem to jump around. And <laughs> I hear that. You still hear that? I don't know. I mean, in the US, I think there are so many people, so many recruiters and HR professionals who do recognize that that's not symbolic of someone or representative of someone being a job hopper. It is more kind of like they can be a great person. They are maybe trying to follow the passion. Whether that person agrees with that pursuit or not, they don't judge it in the same way. And I think we do need to step back from these judgments, which are about unlearning. I see it coded into systems, into software, into loads of these things like marginalized folks in so many ways, because the natural mental model for so many people is that's not how I did it. That's not my experience. That's not the way I did it. And I see it just emerge, even when I'm sitting in hiring committees sometimes or just watching the candidate go through the process. And I can't say that I'm not guilty of it because <laughs> we all fall into Do our own trap. Come on. Well, AI, I think AI in throwing another spanner into the works. The other thing I was going to say, because of AI, I mean, the upskilling and reskilling that we're needing to do, that young employees and all of us are needing to do, you know, like this lifelong learning, upskilling, the half-life of skills has gone from 10 years to five years. And I was just doing some stuff on skilling and cloud computing. There's been a major architecture shift. And so the upskilling that's needed in that particular area is every 4.5 months. So yes. How we're needing to keep moving and not be set in how things are in terms of also what our jobs are needing to be. And if we think about how young people, whether it's the first group, like the Gen Z in our organizations, but also through millennials and higher up, that in using AI, in asking people to be using AI, you're asking them not just to be sort of augmenting their jobs but also disrupting their own jobs, changing their jobs. I mean, that's exciting if that's what you get excited by, which I do. But also, that feels risky. That can be nerve-wracking. How is my job going to change? 
I can anticipate some of this, but not necessarily all of it. Like huge percentage of marketers and particularly digital marketers are using AI now. What's that going to mean? I'm going to have to keep moving, keep upskilling. So I think that's also helping older generations really recognize that all of this is moving. And as challenging as that may be at the same time, this hugely dynamic understanding of how our organizations and how our people and the tasks and what they're doing and how their roles are going to fit together. And that is really helping us sort of shifting some of those set ways of thinking to really looking at how dynamic this is and what other people's experiences are, which may be different to our own. Yeah. The example you mentioned about cloud computing resonates massively. Mm -hmm. I remember in 16, I was working with Capital One. They were probably the first bank where Rich Fairbank, the CEO, made a statement to say that we're actually want to be a technology company that just happens to operate in the financial services. And they went on and started to really invest in their people. And one of the things that was quite a significant investment at the time was that they committed to training all their engineers in Amazon Web Services, which instantly made them more valuable in the market. But they needed this skill to do the transformation that they wanted. But at the same time, the fascinating part about AWS is features get released faster than people they can create training for. So what started to emerge in the company is that people, as they went through the certification program, instantly there was an expectation that they had to start mentoring other people about how to use the technology. And then what actually started to emerge was these like learning peer groups where people would like start sitting down and saying, yeah, I've been working with that new feature. Here's how I'm applying it in this part of the business. And then what we would do to sort of incentivize and sort of recognize the behavior then is that we'd like literally put people's names up on the wall. Anyone who was actually being a mentor, a guide, coaching other people how to do it, you tell their manager, their manager's manager about it. And suddenly you created this system that they were literally like learning wow, as quickly as the really teachers were arriving. It was. And today, if you asked what's the sort of greatest, well, Amazon would even point to Capital One as their number one case study for cloud computing and transformation. And a lot of that was inspired by some really great people in there. Drew being one of them, their dean of cloud computing, mm-hmm. who went on to be a co-founder of A Cloud Guru that was recently purchased by Pluralsight. So all these people sort of got into that space of peer learning and mentoring and growing. That's a very powerful model, a very powerful model. And particularly when we're trying to move and learn and grow at this pace, which is challenging. It's challenging for organizations. I mean, large organizations trying to implement internal talent marketplaces, they're experimenting, they're trying, they're throwing things out there. This is a serious work in progress, as important and incredible and critical it is right now. They're still so this kind of peer group to get the peer learning and training, that's a very powerful model. I love that. Thank you. <laughs> no, you're welcome. Looking ahead, one question I've got to ask you is like, now you are, as I say, you're living it, you're, we're here in modern work, the future work, you know, is definitely here, but I'm kind of thinking about what do you then see are the emerging patterns then? What are some of the stuff that is getting you excited through your research, through the exposure you're getting to 
different companies and people working in new ways. It was clear that we were going to have a lot of tensions and struggles about where people work or moving to different new ways of working, which isn't, I mean, I call it modern work, the sort of the future work that is here, but the environment is here, but most companies have not yet adapted to it. So there's a lot of strain and struggle, particularly because, for example, hybrid models or flexible hybrid models, which are really what's necessary, are not easy to make happen. And it's inevitable to have some dips in productivity or results. Therefore, there's this strain and struggle, which is has been wasting a lot of time and effort. Apparently, it's the hottest topic in boardrooms. We need to be moving past that to be focusing on how we do this. This is what's necessary. It's not about what employees want and desire. That's really good and meeting them and listening to what they need. But it's also very much about what the business needs. And business needs have to be flexible. We have to be able to be responsive. And that means giving employees flexibility as well. So we need to be moving on, really focusing on sort of the strategic shift towards modern work and absorbing all these things. So I'm relieved, I won't say excited, I'm relieved that we now seem to be getting beyond that. And there are more and more companies that are focused on that. And the data is finally consistently showing that as much as some of the media loves to make incendiary comments and titles, that's where we are. And HR really focus on trying to make it happen and make it work. We aren't there yet and really learning asynchronous working and working in very different ways because we've never really designed, like we never kind of went, oh, the best way to work is everybody in the office. We didn't do that. We just said like the computers were there, they're expensive. We wanted needed to use them. So we worked in the office. That wasn't the best way to do it. And now we've got all the new technology. So really doing the design work, the strategic thought to kind of like say, how can we work the best way and what's that going to look like? So I'm excited that we're finally getting to that point to kind of go, this is what we need to be doing. We need to be focusing on this and understanding. I'm, you know, looking at the challenges of moving really the shift of focus on skills. And with the integration of more and more AI applications, what that's going to mean. So the next few years are going to be pretty turbulent, I think. Lots of exciting ways. There's a lot of shift. I think we do need to really be focusing on culture to keep people connected wherever they're working, but to keep people connected and feeling grounded during really turbulent times. That goes back to my sort of focusing on empathy or just recognizing that we need much stronger relationships at work so we can work together more easily. And as we're collaborating more, as we automate it all away as much as we can so we can focus on the difficult stuff, it's more difficult. You know, it is harder the work that we're doing. It's more complicated. And as we sort of lean in to be working together, we need to understand better how to work together. There are a lot of really interesting challenges and changes that are happening and incredible opportunities that are coming out of it. I mean, I truly do believe that where we're going is a much better place where we can individually be recognized as how we work best, when we work best. We're trying to understand our preferences, how you and I can work together better, like what's your time of day? I'm going to wait until you've had your cup of coffee or tea, depending on what your time zone is, so that you're awake and I'm awake and all of those types of things. So it's a really positive and benefit the business. And we need that. So I think where we're going is really an amazing place. At the same time, it's going to be pretty messy getting there. So we need to give ourselves a lot of grace and employers and executives and managers recognize that. We are all in this together. We've got to be working together to get there and benefiting from everybody's contributions. But 
it's going to be messy. <laughs> well, I think it's going to be a lot of fun getting there and we'll continue to follow your fantastic work in the space. You share so much, whether it's through your books, your courses on LinkedIn, and just writing in general. Thank you very much, Sophie, for being on the show and sharing your story and experiences with us. I look forward to having you back on again in the future. Hopefully it won't be too long. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Barry. Your vision of unlearning and helping people do things in different ways by unlearning is extremely powerful. So I really appreciate your work as well. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that show, but I'm even more delighted to share the exciting news. I've recently co-founded a new venture studio named Nobody Studios. Now, Venture Studio is a vehicle for the rapid creation of new companies from ideation to acceleration and growth. And our purpose at Nobody Studios will be to de-risk pre-seed stage business ideas. We'll do this by minimizing the time, speed and capital involved in validating truly repeatable and scalable business models before any significant venture investment. We've an audacious goal to start 100 compelling companies over the next five years. And who knows how many beyond that? So if you're interested in radically changing the way work is done, how products are created, companies built and funded, even democratizing the wealth creation and how returns are distributed, this could be the business for you. We're looking for talent, capital, and influence. If you wish to contribute any or all of these, just get in touch. You can follow us on nobodystudios.com, on our LinkedIn page, all the social media accounts, or simply my newsletters and what I'm sharing. We'll be launching a truly innovative crowdfunding campaign, and I'd be honored if you'd be willing to join us on this journey and become a nobody yourself. <laughs>